When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Issue in Interviews with Kieran Michael Lawler on the Red Apple Podcast Network. This is Issue and Interviews. And now, here's Kieran Michael Lawler. Great to be back on Issues and Interviews with Kieran Michael Lawler. So much going on. We have a jam-packed show today. We're going to talk about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' visit to the Big Apple this week. We're going to do... Something that's really one of my favorite pastimes, and it's well-deserved, it's called Cuomo bashing. Cuomo had a tough week. He's having a tough week. He's had a tough couple of years, and he had a tough week. And now they're going to take the Cuomo name, possibly, off of the Tappan Zee Bridge, the bridge formerly known as the Tappan Zee. Also, you might have been following this in the papers, and it's kind of an interesting story up in Albany. Kathy Hogle, a Democrat, appointed a liberal Democrat, Justice Hector LaSalle, to be the head of the highest court be the chief justice of the Court of Appeals in New York, and her fellow Democrats shot it down. Well, a Republican former colleague of mine, Senator Anthony Palumbo from Long Island, is going to be on the show today on the Issues and Interviews Hotline telling us what's going on with his lawsuit because he brought a lawsuit that says, hey, a committee cannot reject a judge. The full Senate has to reject a judge. So we're going to get an update on that whole situation from Albany. And we have a big anniversary this week. You know, I started out my professional life and my career as a social studies teacher. I taught American history, among other things. And as I think you know, I'm a United States Marine. My father and brother, also Marines. And this week is the anniversary of probably the most important day in Marine Corps history. One of the most important days in American history. The flag was raised on Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima this week, 78 years ago. We're going to talk about the bloodshed in that battle, what that flag raising meant for the country and for the war effort, all on today's show. But let's get started with DeSantis. Ron DeSantis was in town. He's doing a support the police tour and a couple interesting things. We know Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida. He's also probably, if he decides to run, the most formidable challenger to President Trump and his bid to be elected president again. And he's in New York. He's giving pro-cop speeches, giving the cops a pat on the back. And you know who introduced him? Very interesting, given the political world that we live in. Congressman Lee Zeldin, who was our gubernatorial candidate, almost beat Kathy Hochul back in November, a longtime Trump supporter, a very strong and effective Trump supporter over the years. So he's introducing DeSantis. Now, that's not an endorsement. It doesn't mean anything. But it is interesting. It is interesting to see the strength of the DeSantis candidacy and People like Lee Zeldin, also my friend and former colleague Joe Borelli, a longtime Trump supporter from Staten Island. The event was on Staten Island. He was there. Uh, so he had a nice picture, and I texted with him about the DeSantis event. So some people from the Trump orbit, some known Trump supporters gravitating, at least for this one event, You know, likely because it was in New York. But there are some optics there. We are at the beginning of a presidential election right now. So interesting stuff there. And, of course... Two people made a mistake with regard to this DeSantis appearance in New York. Adams, 
the mayor, Mayor of Adams, Sid Rosenberg's best friend, Mayor Adams, decided to tweet at and criticize DeSantis for his visit, basically saying New York City is doing better than Florida, which is ridiculous. All you have to do is look at I-95 and all the New Yorkers moving down to Florida. You know, and in my real estate practice, I do a lot of real estate. I do a lot of real estate transactions in my law practice. And I've had a lot of clients in the last year, two, three years, really accelerated since the pandemic started selling their houses here in the Hudson Valley and moving down to moving south in general, but so many moving to Florida because it's like freedom land. Florida within the 50 states, thanks to Ron DeSantis, really, and his policies, is kind of like America used to be in the world. It's the place you go to be free. It's the place you go for opportunity. So Adams made a mistake attacking DeSantis yesterday, and I love the way the DeSantis people handled it. DeSantis didn't go back at Adams. He had a staffer do it which is a great way to handle it. It's kind of like saying, hey, you're not even worth my time. I'm, I'm running the great state of Florida, which now has more people than the state of New York. And I don't even have time for your nonsense and your tweets, Mayor Adams. I'm going to have a staffer handle it. I used to do that in the assembly. If I didn't like somebody who was coming in, I'd make them meet with the intern and I'd make it clear. Okay, you're going to meet with my intern for 10 minutes and then I'll talk to you for a couple minutes just to make it clear that I didn't really care for them and, and didn't really like what they had to say. And I think DeSantis is pulling that same stunt. And I like Trump. I like Trump. I like DeSantis too. A Trump-DeSantis ticket, I think that would be great. Trump can only run one term because you can only serve eight years as the president. And he's going to be a one, four-year term, and then he's got to move on. So whoever his vice president is, is almost automatically in a presidential race. So Trump-DeSantis would be good. But Trump lashed out at DeSantis after this meeting. And I don't think that helps. I don't think that helps. I think Trump does best when he says nothing or he just talks about the success of his time as president. It was a great four years. At the time, you knew it was a great four years. But now you fast forward two years into the Biden administration, you really know it was a great four years because things have gone south in every way. I mean, I never in my adult life since the Cold War ended, when I was in high school, basically, I never really thought there would be a World War III. I was in the Marine Corps. I was in a war. And I never thought there would be a World War III. Now you really got to think, holy cow. American weakness is provocative. Joe Biden's weakness is provocative. It probably gave Putin a green light to go into Ukraine and cause all the bloodshed there. And it likely is giving the green light to China to be aggressive. China might start giving lethal aid to the Russians. So now you're starting to have China and Russia together and Europe on the other side. And that's that's you know that has all the makings of, of World War III. God forbid that that would ever happen. But I never thought we'd be in these kind of conversations. And it's because we have President Biden and not the second term of President Trump. But if President Trump wants to get a second term, he's got to be more disciplined. He's got to be more disciplined. He got away with that stuff in the beginning. But there are people that he should be his supporters, should be in his corner, that he's pushing away with attacking Ron DeSantis. You know, I don't think we have to live by the, the old Reagan 11th commandment. Republicans don't criticize Republicans. I think there are plenty of Republicans that need to be criticized. But Trump's not doing it well. I don't think you can Trump, uh, attack DeSantis. DeSantis, if I was Trump, I would say, hey, DeSantis is like a, he's like a small, smaller version of me. He's a Florida version of what I did. He's a Florida version of what Trump did. He's got a prosperous country and a free country. Trump made a mistake when he was, he's attacking DeSantis on COVID. DeSantis was a hero on COVID. Trump made some mistakes, you know. He, he, I don't know if you can, how much of the blame for having Fauci there, for having Dr. Burks there, and some of those early decisions that were made. But, you know, ultimately the buck stops at the president's table. Once he got his footing and figured out what was going on, DeSantis was much quicker 
to open up his state. And he never closed the state as much as other states. So foolish recently for Trump to dis- attack DeSantis. I wish they could figure something out. Either have Trump as president emeritus, where he's he's an influential member of a President DeSantis regime, or have a Trump DeSantis ticket with DeSantis as the heir apparent. But Trump tweeting and criticizing, not even tweeting, he's using Trump's social, and then other people have to tweet it on Twitter. I don't think that's helping anybody. We have to win. I mean, we really have to win for the sake of this country. Every election feels like it's the biggest election. Every presidential election feels like it's the biggest one that's ever come down the pike. But holy cow, after this two years and two months that we've had in the Biden administration, my goodness, does a Republican have to beat Biden or whoever the uh, candidate is? And I'm going to transition into sort of the next topic, but it's related to the presidential election. Two years ago at this time, Andrew Cuomo would have been on the list of people to be Democrat candidates for president. He was riding high. The media loved him. Democrats loved him. Ron DeSantis was a pariah down in Florida, even though it was pretty obvious to me from New York, looking at Florida, reading about Florida in the papers and in the news, Florida was doing everything right, but the media loved Cuomo. Well, a report out this week basically says Cuomo did everything wrong. Everything Cuomo did with regard to the pandemic Uh, not just nursing homes, which is the obvious one that's been talked about, but shutting down the schools, all of the mandates, they didn't help. And in some cases, they made things worse. So Cuomo probably saw himself as a president. I'm sure that he did. He lives in the shadow of his father, Governor Mario Cuomo, who came before him. In fact, back when Sheldon Silver was the speaker, there was a fake Twitter handle called Fake Sheldon Silver, and he would never refer to Andrew Cuomo by his name, Andrew Cuomo, or Governor Andrew Cuomo. He would call him Mario's kid. And that's how, that's how I think a lot of elder statesmen in Albany saw Andrew Cuomo. And he lived in his father's shadow. He thought he could surpass what his father accomplished in his life as governor of New York and be president. Obviously, it's never going to happen now, but boy, he, he was close. He was close to being named VP. He was writing a book, getting that $5 million. And now, to add insult to injury to the Cuomos, a Democrat... I'll say that again. A Democrat, James Scoofus, brutal name, right? Scoofus, a Democrat state senator from Orange County, not too far from where I live, someone I worked with in the Assembly and the Senate. He's a Democrat, pretty liberal Democrat, but he's introducing a bill to change the name of the Mario Cuomo Bridge, which Cuomo tucked into a, either it was a budget bill or an omnibus bill in the middle of the night and passed it and changed the name from Tap NZ to the Mario Cuomo Bridge. Well, Scoofus isn't coming at it the way Republicans have come at it and say, take Cuomo off the bridge, take that name off the bridge. He's just saying, hey, a lot of my constituents wanted to go back to the original name, the Tappan Zee Bridge, named after, I guess, the Tappan Zee Indians. Another irony there, New York State and Kathy Hochul are making all high schools remove their Indian mascots. We have a couple of high schools by me, the Ketchum Indians, the Mayapak Indians. They have to spend millions of dollars and scrub Indians from all their uniforms, from the center of their football field, turf all over their school, or they're going to lose federal uh, state funds. The state is going to take away education funding if you have an Indian-sounding or an Indian-inspired sports mascot. Meanwhile, Democrats, the same Democrats in Albany, want to change the Tappan Zee Bridge back from Mario Cuomo to Tappan Zee Indians. So lots going on in New York, lots going on in the presidential election. We're going to get into the nitty-gritty of constitutional law and By the end of the show, we're going to talk about the important, important anniversary and what it means for today of the Iwo Jima flag raising. Stick with me. Much more to come. 
We are joined on the Issues and Interviews Hotline by Senator Anthony Palumbo, New York State Senator from Strong Island. How are you doing, Senator Palumbo? Yeah, I'm great, Karen. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're in the news a lot lately. You're kind of the tip of the Republican spear and the tip of the checks and balances spear in the New York State Senate with regard to the appointment of the next chief judge of the highest court in New York State, the Court of Appeals. Tell me what's going on so far and what the future holds as far as the next chief judge and your lawsuit. Yeah, sure. So just to give a a brief background of the current state of affairs, we were in the Judiciary Committee, and as you know, under our state constitution, our committee provides advice and consent with regard to governor's nominations, particularly when it comes to the Court of Appeals. We have a very nuanced aspect of the law as well that combines with the nomination that we must act within 30 days. So we have a hearing a public hearing, and the nominee is uh, a justice named Hector LaSalle. He's the presiding judge in one of our intermediate courts, the appellate division, and has an outstanding record, really competent jurist, reduced uh, backlog of cases by 40%. He's just done a great job, he's an, and he's a Democrat. He's a regular liberal Democrat. So we get to the committee hearing, and never in the history of New York State has a governor's nominee been declined. Wow. And the hearing starts going sideways and you have all the progressive New York City Democrats start to go after him. He's the first Latino appointee ever to be chief judge of our highest court. So they go after him. He was a former prosecutor. In 2008, he ran on the conservative line. So they said, you're just not progressive enough. And they started suggesting that he is someone who, and they even asked questions like, why did you decide to follow the law on this one, Judge? I mean, <laughs> expecting that. They, I, I swear to God. And, and you have these members of the five-hour hearing saying that, you know what, you are someone that we can't trust because you'll just apply the law. You won't be a so-called activist. It's essentially the tone of all their, of all their positions and questioning. We took a vote, and it was 10 to 9 not mm-hmm. to confirm him. So the Democrats all voted No. Our Republicans, there are six of us on the committee. I'm the ranking Republican on the Judiciary Committee. So we voted to advance it to the floor without recommendation. Now, that happens, the vote happens, and the chairman of the committee, Brad Hoyleman from Manhattan, said, you know what, it's over. There's no more to do. This vote does not go to the full Senate, which is not what what we believe the Constitution provides and and what is required, that a committee... And by the way, they added members to the committee a week or so before, three Democrats and one Republican. The three Democrats all voted no and killed the nomination. And as an aside, under our rules, it needs to be, the membership needs to be in perfect proportion to the overall body, which is two to one, not three to one. So the governor said, I think it should be a full floor vote. The governor did nothing for almost a month. So we said, I discussed it with our conference, I ended up suing the Senate majority leader and all those members that voted no, saying that they're not abiding by the Constitution because it's required to go to the Senate for a full vote. It was quite the uh, media frenzy, sure. saying that the governor w- looks like she was being completely incompetent or is completely incompetent because she did nothing on behalf of her nominee. And this is a real nominee. And uh, as you've seen in the media, you even have some of these really left-leaning papers, the Times, the New York Daily News. Agreeing with me. So the lawsuit was filed about a week and a half ago. We had an expedited hearing 
and oral argument on Friday. And today, since yesterday was a holiday, the judge will most likely, he said, you'll probably get a decision Tuesday, which is today, either for or against. And it was, you know, real heavy hitters. We have an outstanding law firm, Pillsbury Winthrop. A former judge is on the brief, a guy named James Catterson Jr. He was the presiding judge in the first department, which is another, as you know, inter- intermediate appellate court. Right. So we had a team of four or five lawyers, and they had a team of four or five lawyers as well. And it's really, I expect no matter what happens today, even if the court rules in our favor or against us, it's going to be appealed. So it's going to keep going up the road because it's very simple that regardless of what happened with the nominee, that it requires a full Senate vote. And just one more, I know I'm giving a long answer, but one more comment is that after the lawsuit was filed, even though the the Senate Democrat majority said, we are not required to bring it to the floor for a full vote. We're right. They actually held an emergency judiciary meeting on Wednesday, two days before the oral arguments after the lawsuit was filed. And we had a committee meeting. We had some real discussion regarding this is clearly done in response to the lawsuit. And they said, oh, no, no, we just want to reconsider this vote. And he was, the nominee was unanimously without recommendation voted onto the floor of the Senate. We did have a full floor vote and it failed. The confirmation failed. So they're saying now the lawsuit is moot. It should be dismissed. And we said no, because this is an issue. We still have a vacancy on the Court of Appeal. And this is an issue that's going to arise again. Judge, just tell us what the answer is. Yes or no, that a judicial nominee needs to go to the full Senate for a vote. So it's what's called a declaratory judgment. We're just saying, Judge, Here's the law. Here's the facts. Tell us what the answer is. Do you think he'll rule one way or the other on the actual issue of whether it has to go to a full floor vote? Or could he say the issue is moot because they have already shot down this nominee? Judge Whelan could do either. As you said, he could start the threshold issue now is mootness. However, the case law and the law in New York is pretty specific that you can't do something like this to simply avoid a judicial determination of something that's justiciable or, you know, it's ripe for decision, number one. And number two, it's, if it's a novel issue and it's likely to arise again between these parties, those are all the appropriate issues to deny a claim of mootness and get to the actual merits. Based upon the oral arguments, Judge Thomas Whalen, who is, I believe, a registered Democrat, so I think he's someone who's a real fair jurist anyway, he really went after the defendants in this lawsuit where that would be the the, Senate, the Democratic senators, and said, look, this is something that is a constitutional crisis. And I understand if it's something that's resolved amongst the parties, but if there's an unanswered issue such as this, then that requires us to make it, that's the judges and the judiciary's obligation to reconcile the issue. Yeah. Senator Anthony Palumbo, ranking member of the Judiciary Committee in the state Senate. Important stuff. I think the big takeaway is you have a very liberal governor appoints a liberal judge, and if that liberal judge has a track record of following the law, somehow in the minds of the majority of senators in New York State, a judge that follows the law, even if he's liberal or she is liberal, is somehow not qualified to sit in that highest seat in our judicial system. That is amazing stuff, Anthony Plumbo. I appreciate the insights. I'll let you get back to your hard work there. But thank you for giving us exactly what's going on in our capital. From the present and exactly what's going on right now in our court system and in our state capitol to 78 years ago this week, an incredibly important event occurred 
both symbolically and in very much real terms. Our flag, the Star Spangled Banner, was raised by six Marines on Mount Suribachi in World War II on the island of Iwo Jima. And it is an incredible story, not just the flag raising itself, not just the almost perfect picture in terms of photography, but the impact that that picture had and why it is still such a powerful image, maybe the most famous photograph ever, was taken 78 years ago today when those Marines raised the flag. A little bit of background. The famous picture that you see with the six Marines putting the flagpole into the mountain there and Sir Bocci and the flag unfurled just perfectly was taken by AP photographer Joe Rosenthal. That's the famous flag raising that got caught in the picture. But there was an original flag, a smaller flag that was raised on Iwo Jima, which was very strategically important. The Japanese were using it to intercept and shoot down our planes. If we were ever going to get to mainland Japan and win the war, we needed Iwo Jima. So the battle started a few days before that flag was raised. And an incredible amount of Marines, 60,000 Marines, landed on February 19th, along with Navy Seabees. They made an amphibious landing on Iwo Jima. And on the first day alone, more than 550 were killed and more than 1,800 were wounded. And over the next few days, Marines slowly made their, made their advance forward. And on the 23rd of February, they held the high ground. They raised a relatively small 54-inch by 28-inch American flag on Suribachi. I actually have a picture of that in my house also. There is a picture. It's not the famous picture. One of the flag raisers is named Charles Lindbergh not the famous aviator from that time, but I actually have an autographed picture of the original smaller flag, flag raising with Charles Lindbergh, one of the flag raisers autograph on it. My father found somewhere and gave it to me for Christmas one year. But there were people on the shore that couldn't see the smaller flag, the 54 by 28 inch flag. And also the secretary of the Navy was there to witness the fighting on Iwo Jima, James Forrestal. Beacon, New York native, which is just two towns over from me here in Dutchess County. He said, I'd like that first flag for a souvenir. And besides, it's too small. We can't see it. So they sent up a bigger flag, 96 inches by 56 inches. That's, that's like 10 feet by five feet. That's a huge flag, which very fittingly originally originated on Pearl Harbor. And that's the flag that was raised. It was raised by six Marines for a very long time, for 60 years or so, 70 years they thought it was five Marines and a sailor, but it turns out, as I will discuss, it was actually six six Marines. Corporal Harlem Brock of Yorktown, Texas, he enlisted in the Marine Corps along with his entire high school football team, the whole football team. During World War II, they graduated high school, and they all joined the Marine Corps. Harlem Brock from Texas, one of the flag raisers. Private First Class Franklin Susley from Hilltop, Kentucky. It was a guy working as a refrigerator in a refrigerator factory, making refrigerators prior to enlisting in the Marines. Sergeant Mike Strank, actually born overseas in Czechoslovakia, was an immigrant to this country, but his birthday was 10 November, which, as you might know, is the Marine Corps birthday, one of the flag raisers. In fact, the senior man, he was a sergeant while the others were corporals or PFCs, private first class. The next flag raiser you might know, there's a famous song written about him and sung by Johnny Cash. Corporal Ira Hayes was a Pima Indian from Scatton, Arizona. He was immortalized in that famous song, The Ballad of Ira Hayes. And then the final two flag raisers that I want to mention, and I think it's important to mention 
the names of these men. 16 million Americans served in World War II, and these six flag raisers represent all 16 million of those who served. Some of the flag raisers survived, some of them didn't survive, some of them had prosperous lives. The final two flag raisers were not known until the last five or six years because there were misidentifications. As you can imagine, you can't really see faces in the you can't really see faces in the famous picture. It was a chaotic day. They were fighting. They had blood on them, their own blood, their fellow Marines' blood on them. And there was confusion about it. And it was recently just settled. But the final two flag raisers were Corporal Harold Schultz from Detroit, Michigan, who was wounded in, in action and evacuated off the island about three weeks after the famous picture was taken. And Corporal Harold Pye Keller from Brooklyn, Iowa. He was a Marine Raider, and he was, he was a pretty salty Marine. By the time he got to EUO, he had fought at Midway, Guadalcanal, and Bougainville prior to that amphibious landing. Harlem Block was originally misidentified, but in 1947, they figured that out, that, that it was actually him and not Hank Hansen that was a flag raiser. Harold Schultz was misidentified as Navy Corpsman John Doc Bradley, and that's really important because it was Doc Bradley's son who wrote the famous book, which became the famous movie, Flags of Our Fathers. Turns out that Doc Bradley raised the first flag, the smaller flag, and not the big flag. So if you watch that movie or read that book, that's a major inaccuracy throughout. No doubt, Doc Bradley was a heroic American. He was a Navy corpsman, which uh, if, he, if it was the Army, you'd call it a medic. But he, he treated the wounds of Marines. Marine Corps does not have its own medical personnel. We use the Navy's personnel because of that Marine Corps-Navy partnership. And Doc Bradley raised the first flag, treated, treated his fellow Marines throughout the war and on Iwo Jima. But it turns out we learned only three or four years ago that he actually did not raise the second flag. And it was a, was a misidentification. And Pod Keller was misidentified as Rini Gagnon, who appears a lot in the movie and in the book. It was Rini Gagnon who ran the second bigger flag up the, up the mountain to be raised. But he was not one of the six flag raisers in the picture. Uh, and the photo is so important because it, it, it not only was inspirational to the six Marines who raised it, to the, to the Marines, to their comrades in arms. There was much more fighting to go, not only on Iwo Jima, but uh, in, in the war in general. But the, the photo was taken within 17 hours. It was in every newspaper in the United States, which was lightning fast for the time period. Today, we'd call that going viral. It went viral from a tiny island in the Pacific of Iwo Jima to newspapers in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and around the country. And President Roosevelt saw that picture and knew it was a, a perfect picture. It's almost a perfect triangle. The flag is raised so perfectly. He took that picture and made it the focus of the seventh war, war bond drive to pay for the beans and the bullets to win the rest of the war. And uh, they had a goal of raising 10 or $12 million billion with that war bond drive. And because of this picture, because three of the flag raisers who survived came home and helped promote the war bond drive, which you see, which you see in the book and in the movie, even though the names are incorrect in two of the cases, only Ira Hayes came home for the war bond drive and actually asked to go back to the front because he didn't want to be away from his fellow Marines. Uh, but that war bond drive raised $26.3 billion. But even after the flag was was raised, the war raged on another five weeks. In total, 6,800 Americans were killed, 19,000 were wounded. Iwo Jima is the only World War II battle by the U.S. Marine Corps where the American casualties exceeded the Japanese. And 27 medals of honor were awarded for action on Iwo Jima. That's more than any other battle in U.S. history.
I met one of these Medal of Honor recipients from Iwo Jima. Incredible story. Guy named Jack Lucas. I, I served briefly aboard the USS Iwo Jima, and Jack Lucas came and visited us and spoke to the Marines. He was probably in his 70s at the time. But when he enlisted in the Marine Corps, he lied about his age. He was only 14 years old. So he's fighting on Iwo Jima. He's only 17 years old and already been in the Marine Corps for three years because he lied about his age and, and had a fraudulent enlistment. Let me tell you what Jack Lucas did. 17-year-old, a child. You know, I, I have children. My oldest is 16. So the same age, basically, as my children. And this is what this 17-year-old Marine did on Iwo Jima. It kind of puts in perspective uh, the valor of the Marines on Iwo Jima. Quick to act when the lives of the small group were endangered by two grenades, which landed directly in front of them. Private First Class Lucas unhesitatingly hurled himself over his comrades upon one grenade and pulled the other one under him, absorbing the whole blasting force from the explosion in his own body in order to shield his companions from the concussion and murderous flying fragments. That's what it says in his Medal of Honor citation in part. When he received the Medal of Honor, he was only 17 years old. He lived to tell about it. The man landed on, jumped on two grenades that exploded and he did suffer injuries, but he was alive in 2002 when I met him more than 50 years after the fact and just incredible heroism. Very famously, Admiral Nimitz said of the Marines on, on Iwo Jima, by their victory, the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Marine Divisions and other units of the 5th Amphibious Corps have made an accounting to their country, which only history will be able to fully value. Among the Americans serving on Iwo Island, uncommon valor was a common virtue. Now, that is a little bit of a history lesson right there, but I think the big lesson is Think about what our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers did for this country. Jack Lucas jumped on two live grenades to save other Marines. What are we doing for our country? What are our leaders doing for our country? We cannot let this slip away. We cannot let the prosperity and the freedom and the rule of law slip away. And I'm afraid, we talked about this a little more, worried about World War III. I'm afraid that it's starting to slip away. My children range from 11 to 16. What kind of world are they going to live in if the United States is weakened? We need brave people, not just to step up into the military, but just to step up and stand up for our values, stand up for our values in the classroom, in our schools, where they want to destroy American values, where they don't teach about the men like Jack Lucas and what the United States did, frankly, to stop the Holocaust and save the world from Nazism, fascism, and imperialism. We all need to step up as Americans, use the inspiration of the six Marines who raised a flag on Iwo Jima, use the inspiration of this child, Jack Lucas, who jumped on two hand grenades to save his buddies and lived to tell about it. Use that inspiration to make this country what it ought to be, what it once was, and even better than it once was. We need uncommon valor today in every aspect of our lives. So that's it. We have to wrap up this edition of Issues and Interviews with Kieran Michael Lawler. Great to be on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Tune in next time. We'll have great guests. We'll talk about the issues. We'll be fiery and passionate. If you like what you're hearing, definitely share it with your friends. We need the downloads, issues, and interviews with Kieran and Michael Lawler on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Listen to every episode, and I'll be back next time. Take care.